Welcome to Radioactive Summer Break. I'm Laura Jones. Tonight, two nonprofit groups with data to back up their calls to action in our community. The Utah Foundation has a new report on the gaps in services for the homeless. We'll talk with researcher Jesus Valero, a professor of political science at the University of Utah, and Sean Teigen, the foundation's research director. Then 20 is plenty. It's the rallying cry of the folks at Sweet Streets, a community-based group focused on gaining political clout to influence the planning, the budgeting, the implementation and operation of city streets, sidewalks, and public spaces. They'll make their case as to why you should get involved. But let's get started with Songs of Summer. It's our community playlist that folks have been helping Radioactive build. And you can see how it's growing online at krcl.org, by the way. Tomorrow is the National Park Service's 105th birthday, which means that across the country, entrance fees are waived for everyone so you can get out and enjoy the national parks, including Arches, Bryce, Canyonlands, Capitol Reef, and Zion National Parks all here in Utah. That's the Mighty Five. So I've got a pick just for the occasion from a band that sonically and lyrically kind of nails it for Songs of Summer and the National Park Service's birthday. Here's Wildflower. The National Parks on KRCL 90.9. Are you a teen inspired to be heard? Do you want to be a DJ on this station, KRCL 90.9 FM? Then join Loud and Clear Youth Radio. We are currently looking for the next group of interested teens ages 14 to 19 who want to be the next group of youth DJs at this station. Applications are due September 12th, so hurry. For more information, visit spyhop.org. We are looking forward to hearing your voice on this station. You're listening to the Radioactive Summer Break on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. Earlier this month, the Utah Foundation released the third in a series of reports that explores gaps in homeless services in Salt Lake County. Topping the list of unmet needs, housing, of course, and employment services. To find out more and dig a little deeper, I spoke with the Foundation's Sean Teigen and main researcher Jesus Valero, a professor of political science at the University of Utah, who two years ago co-authored the State of Utah Strategic Plan on Homelessness. Here's our conversation. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, Thanks for having us, Laura. Thanks for having us, Laura. It's great to be here. So, Sean, set the stage for us, because this is the third report in the series. Uh, When did the series start and why? You know, the series started uh, with one report, and it was a report that was going to look at experiences of people experiencing uh, homelessness. And we actually had a focus group we were going to set up uh, for the week of the shutdown last year. And, and so I was like, yeah, you know, we're, we're going to totally shift gears. This isn't going to work. Uh, people don't want us interviewing them at the start of a, of a pandemic when there were still a million questions around about the virus and whatnot. And so we reached out to homeless service providers and asked them, hey, what, what the heck do you guys want to know? Like, what are some of the things that might be beneficial to you? And, and the big kind of takeaway was, what are the gaps? What can you help us find out what uh, some of the gaps are in services uh, that we're providing to people experiencing homelessness? 
So that was the first report. And the second was about coping strategies and innovations that providers adopted to withstand the effects of the pandemic. And now the third report, we're going to go to Jesus for this. What were you looking at initially? And then we'll get to some of the findings, Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with this last report, we wanted to come to a, you know, a full circle of understanding, you know, um, what the needs were of the homeless service system across uh, the Salt Lake County area. And so while we first started with understanding the challenges of the pandemic and some of the innovation, you know, and strategies organizations were implementing, we wanted to take it a step further and understand, well, you know, with all of this experience in, in mind, you know, what is still missing in terms of services, supports that are needed in order to better support um, individuals and families step out of homelessness. And so that was the main focus of this last report of, of looking closely at um, exactly those gaps that uh, providers are identifying that are still needed in order to better support um, this very vulnerable population in our community. It's called Mending the Net, Exploring Homeless Service Gaps in Salt Lake County, where half of those folks who are homeless in the Beehive State are. And that is no surprise, I think, but that means there's another 50% off of the uh, capital county, so to speak. So what are some of the primary findings here that you'd like to highlight, Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, some of the you know, key areas here is that consistently, uh, whether we're asking providers to identify gaps within their own sort of service area or within the broader service system, because we ask those two different questions, uh, depending on where they stand, as well as looking at the broader picture, what is sort of needed? And the top answer consistently is always housing. Um, the need for more robust housing of all types, affordable housing of all types, um, whether that's permanent supportive housing, whether that's you know, um, apartments that are affordable as well, as well as just being able to buy a home. Um, so sort of different levels of affordable housing are key to uh, responding to this um, serious challenge in our community. Um, some of the other major gaps that um, are present and, and identified by providers are things like um, human resources, um, being able to uh, provide individuals and, and families experiencing homelessness, things like, you know, transportation and other sort of supports um, that are outside of the home, sort of providing them sort of supports for housing. Um, other sort of gaps include health and human services. Um, so being able to support them through mental health needs and challenges, as well as uh, medical conditions, primary care needs that are often um, unaddressed um, and untouched. Um, and lastly, an importance of, of communication and collaboration across this very complex system. Um, even though Salt Lake um, County has an incredible um, and a new system that is really bringing partners of, of across the different service sectors together, um, there's still always a need to be able to share information, share resources and supports in order to provide for the continuum of care of needs that people are experiencing in our area. By the numbers, a section in your report notes that an estimated 10,846 Utahns experiencing homelessness during, during experiencing homelessness during 2020 sought and gained access to shelter, either temporary or permanent, with others remaining unsheltered. Uh, many additional folks uncounted because they are living in their vehicles, couch surfing with friends or relatives or other housing situations. So with this data, what is it that then happens? I don't know if this is a Jesus or a Sean question to tell you the truth. You know, I'll take a shot at this. I, I think it's kind of interesting. Like, uh, 
You know, Laura, if you go out and ask somebody on the street, it's like, hey, you know, how do we uh, take care of this uh, this homelessness problem? When you drive downtown, there are a lot of people like camping on the street. Like, what can we do? And it's like, get those people a job. You know, it's it's important that that we have employment opportunities. And actually, I was a little bit surprised that Jesus found that employment uh, was was second on the list because if you talk to service providers, quite often they're going to say, you know what, it's not just a job. I mean, there's a there's a whole big amount of complexity here um, with with people like if you're experiencing trauma and if you've got uh, a mental health uh, situation and if you've got a, a, a problem uh, of dealing with maybe alcohol or drugs, a job is one piece. Um, but but you know, housing, which Jesus brought up, is very important, and there there are a whole myriad other uh, situations that need to be taken care of, um, other than just you know getting somebody a job. So I was a little bit surprised about this, but I think that the 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 the, the tricky thing is is the complexity behind this whole thing. So I, we we released this report, and and a gentleman reached out to me because he saw uh, some information that we released that 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 you know we released this new report, and he figured you know maybe I can help this, maybe I can help him. And his situation is not that he's uh, broke, um, not that he's you know uh, homeless homeless right this minute, but he's he's got a record. He's been living in a place in Mill Creek for a long time, and it's it's worked out really well. They just changed the management company. The new management company says, you know what? You're a felon. We don't want you here anymore. Good luck finding a place. And now the guy is totally screwed. Like, this guy has no idea where he's going. He's got, he's got now uh, 10 more days to the end of the month. He has no idea. He can't find a place. Um, technically, he's now, by many measures, considered homeless because he doesn't know where he's going to be in 10 more days. This, this, the situation is so complex um, that I, I think that one of the big takeaways and one of the big, uh, hopefully, I think the understandings that's come out of this report is the need for collaboration and the need to find out and really align services and find out where the holes are um, so that people like this guy in Mill Creek uh, can, uh, can get into a housing situation before uh, you know, before he's at a shelter or before they're sleeping in a car or before, and, and, and they, they basically, he, he was uh, mentioning to me that he doesn't have a place to couch surf. So they're, they're kind of like, they're going to be in a hotel for a night until they run out of hotel money. And then they're, and then he doesn't know what he's going to do because, because basically the, the situation with his record. And that's what I think is really hard about these reports, Sean and Jesus is we get this data that we've wanted for a long time, but this data is about people people and their lives and how they're living them, whether they choose to uh, be in the situation they're not, whether they have all these other factors that may be contributing to it. And I think that's maybe one of the things that can get easily overlooked. So Jesus, were you able to gather any stories in the the writing of this report? Yeah. So as Sean had mentioned, that was one of our original goals, um, because I think um, and we all sort of realized this, that we are looking at this research and this work through a system sort of lens, you know, looking at the big picture um, and, and, and particularly from the lens of service providers. Um, and so part of the story, and I think that's missing is still, um, you know, the voices of, of those with lived experiences. Um, and so, for example, one of my students at the U of U who is a uh, just graduated from the Master of Public Administration, um, took a stab at this to try to get some of those stories of 
uh, but people who are experiencing homelessness within our homeless service centers. And uh, what also comes to, to light is that, you know, while yes, these are all important services, sometimes, you know, it's difficult to navigate the system, um, to understand the variety of services that are out there um, and, and, and just understanding, you know, how to go from point A to point D um, and who to go through in order to achieve those different goals. Um, and so, that is a part of the, I think, picture that is missing that we still need to explore further to um, really come to some conclusion, more robust conclusions, I would say, um, about the broader and important picture of um, homeless services across the county. Well, Jesus, we, I'd love to extend the microphone, pass it to your student as a proxy to tell those stories. So please connect us and uh, we'll Absolutely. keep it on a future show. I was also noticing in your report that in late September 2020, you write, there were reports that many homeless service providers were experiencing high increases in the number of people they served. However, Utah's Department of Workforce Services offers a homelessness data dashboard tracking data from, oh, 60 homeless resource providers, actually showing a decrease in the number of people receiving their services when compared to the same date range from the year before. This is where we get into lies, damn lies, and statistics maybe a little bit, Jesus. <laughs> but um, I, I think the visual when people see the news every night uh, of folks still camping on the streets, knowing from other news stories that we have a new system with these new resource centers, they it, it seems the overwhelming narrative seems to be um, that there are more people. What does your data show? Well, you know, so there's a lot of different sort of data sources out there. And so one of those dashboards, I think, um, is taking information and data from the homeless management information system, the HMIS system. And this is a system where providers that are connected to the HMIS, HMIS system, you know, enter and report data. Now, not all service providers that are out in the community are uh, participating in the HMIS system because they're either not receiving federal resources through the COC program or through other resources from the state. And so they're not required or expected to be connected to that HMIS system. So that's part of that discrepancy sometimes that not all organizations are plugged into that data uh, source and, and, and data portal. Um, and so that's one of those parts and, and that creates a little bit of those discrepancies now. In this report, we tried to catch, you know, as broad of, an, of a net of, of providers that are engaged in some capacity in providing support to those experiencing homelessness. So um, here we, we asked them just broadly, you know, what are some of the challenges and issues that you're facing? And, and one of those is, yes, that there was some increase over the pandemic of, of a need for services for supports um, from a variety of providers some connected to the HMIS, HMIS system and some not. So I think that's part of that story as well. So we've used a couple of acronyms that I want to clue people into, COC and HMIS. Will you explain those? Of course. Um, so the HMIS system is the Homeless Management Information System. So this is something that is a part of the federal sort of law surrounding homeless services. So um, that's funded through the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and it's part of um, any sort of efforts around homeless services, uh, and particularly those federally funded. And uh, the Continuum of Care, or COC, um, is the federal homeless service program 
um, that communities can participate in to receive federal resources to support people experiencing homelessness at the local level. Um, and so communities create collaborative networks um, some called the COC or some called something like the Salt Lake Valley Coalition to End Homelessness, but there's still sort of that COC effort to that the continuum of care to provide supports to people experiencing homelessness. So um, these are all federal programs and federal resources to communities to address the incidence of homelessness in their areas. We'll put a link in tonight's show notes to the report, but especially the the brief that you folks have created, because it's a lot of data coming at perhaps yes. the layperson, but in this era where we want to check everyone's sources, it becomes a great tool to inform oneself about the situation in our community where there are 17 key homeless service organizations in Salt Lake County with what your report says is 560 unique connections. So this really speaks, Sean, to the complex and significant network we have out there trying to resolve this issue of homelessness in our community. Yeah, and I, I think that the one of the the, the key things that really uh, that that you know it came up in this report when we were asking generally you know what are some of the gaps, but also we asked about those connections and about that collaboration, and and people suggest these service providers suggest they need more of that collaboration, and it sounds like you know maybe we'll get some more of that with the off the new office of homelessness, and we've got the former uh, president of the Senate kind of uh, heading up that office. Wayne Niederhauser, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think that there are some there are some things that hopefully, you know, this experiment in this in this new office helps get some of those uh, some more of these groups in alignment um, so that we can essentially help as many people as possible. In the meantime, and like like regardless of, of all of that work uh, together, if you know, if folks are experiencing homelessness, homelessness or, or are about to anywhere in the state, um, you know, I, I think, Laura, you often uh, people often reach out, uh, suggest that they should reach out to two one one. I mean, it's 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 as easy as dialing two one one on your phone to get uh, to get some uh, resources that people need. Or if you want to volunteer and help people that are experiencing homelessness, you can do that. Um, we're focusing on this report on the Salt Lake County and the uh, Salt Lake Coalition uh, to End Homelessness. I don't I don't know what the acronym for that is, but the Salt Lake Coalition to End Homelessness. Um, if you reach out to them, uh, they've got a, a great network as well. And I mean, their phone number is 801-990-9999. Um, they can provide you with some of those resources to help you navigate uh, this this complex uh, web of, of service providers and, and hopefully get you the uh, the help you need um, in in order to you know either uh, get off the street um, uh, in, in in quotes there or or to to help you out before you uh, get into that uh, situation of homelessness. Professor Jesus Valero and Sean Teigen, thank you so much for giving us some time today. And Sean, where can people track down the Utah Foundation? Uh, all of our reports, uh, uh, 75 years worth, are at uh, utahfoundation.org. And Jesus, again, congratulations on this great report. I really appreciate you spending some time with us here and explaining what the data says. Of course, it's a pleasure to be here. Jesus Valero and Sean Teigen. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Mending the Net, Exploring Homeless Service Gaps in Salt Lake County. I'm Laura Jones, and still to come this hour, Sweet Streets, which wants your support for a 20-mile-per-hour speed limit on neighborhood streets in the capital city. So here's a Songs of Summer dedication just for Sweet Streets and all the folks who want to be able to ride their bikes or walk safely on city streets. You know what I'm going to do? It's Bicycle from Queen.
on KRCL 90.9. I just put the first KRCL bumper sticker on my car, and now I'm sporting KRCL wherever I go. I officially am a part of the KRCL family. Hi, I'm Trina Baghumian, KRCL's new Director of Underwriting and Special Events. If you own or manage a local business, I would love to connect you with our listeners. With thousands of sets of ears tuned to our station each week, your message will reach folks who value and support Utah's local business community. Become a KRCL sponsor today. Email me at trinab at krcl.org. Worry no more. It's Amos Lee on KRCL. And songs of summer pick, Bicycle from Queen. Coming up at 7, Democracy Now! will come your way, followed by Vagabond Radio with Barbie at 8, Late Night Lowdown with Connor at 10.30, Super Sounds with Chovy at 1 a.m., and then John Florence kicks off your brand new day at 6. The last two weeks of any show can be found on demand online at krcl.org, folks. I'm Laura Jones, and this is the Radioactive Summer Break. Our final conversation tonight is with two of the folks behind Sweet Streets. Here's that conversation. It is back to school for thousands of students across the Beehive State, which means folks slow down, look around, especially as the light starts to change for the safety of students walking to and from school, getting on and off of school buses. There is an organization working to help on that issue. Sweet Street Salt Lake City wants every neighborhood street in Salt Lake City to be 20 miles per hour, perhaps an over perhaps an oversimplification. So to find out more, I've got with me on the line, Luke Garrett, a co-founder and board member, and John A. Nardone, a board member of Sweet Street Salt Lake City, which has a 20 is plenty campaign. Hi, Luke. Give us the nuts and bolts of the inspiration, the origin story, if you will, of Sweet Streets SLC. Well, transportation in our city has so much potential, but many of our streets are very mean. They're dangerous for people who are walking, who are skateboarding, who are biking, who are in wheelchairs. Uh, We've really given our wide 132-foot right-of-ways, that's how wide our streets are generally in Salt Lake City, we've given them all over to cars, and cars like to travel fast, and it's dangerous for everybody else. And our tagline of Sweet Streets is people first streets and public spaces. Uh, We want to reclaim some of the space and some of the safety from streets uh, that are dominated by cars currently, and we want them better balanced so that more people can use those streets, Uh, people of different ages, different abilities, different incomes, so they're more accessible to everybody. John A., why'd you get involved? I, I walk in this neighborhood, um, I walk in the city, I use transit in the city, I bike in the city, and I have, um, you know, slightly adolescent kids, I also have a new baby, and uh, you start u- walking when you used to get a little more sensitive to things when you have children with you, and um, you can start to see that, you know, it's, it's hard to cross, the, you want to walk, I live here so I can walk, but it's hard to walk with a stroller, it's hard to cross that street, um, and um, and, you know, wanting there's a, and, you know, wanting to be protective of my own, but also wanting to the community as it grows to stay really accessible for everyone. So tell me how realistic it is to get 20, 20 is plenty in neighborhood streets, because I know when I'm going 20 on a wide street, I'm like, what, what is this about? I love hitting that 40 over by West High going to my <laughs> house. So talk to me a little bit more about why 20. Is there some science behind it? Uh, Luke, you're a former city council person. 
Well, I'm, and a, but I'm not a traffic engineer, but I do read a, <laughs> I do read a fair amount on this stuff, and it's about safety. Uh, we are uh, everyone on the board subscribes to kind of an urbanist philosophy that streets are for more than just cars, and the reason that more people don't choose to walk, don't choose to ride bikes, roll in various ways, is that they don't feel safe on the streets. And more than any other factor in cities, uh, the speed of cars affects safety. Um, a lot of things go into safety in cities, obviously, uh, but the speed of cars more than anything else, and I'm quoting very loosely uh, the author Jeff Speck here, who wrote a very important book called Walkable City Rules in 2012, I think, 2013. Um, and, and the science does uh, very much bear this out. Uh, fatalities rise exponentially once you get over 20 miles an hour. So you, if you're hit by a car at 30 or 40, your chances of living go down dramatically. And this is common sense. People know this without having to read engineering studies. People don't want to be near streets where there are fast cars because they don't feel safe. And, that, and that's a tragedy for everybody. One of the other things that I've noticed too is when the major arteries, which are typically not city streets, they're state-owned under UDOT, like 7th East or State Street, shall we say. Um, uh, if it's clogged there, people go into the neighborhood streets and speed through during the commute. Have you seen that in your own neighborhood, Johnny? Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, serving on the board and also serving on my community council board, it is the number one thing people, people bring up is their concerns about safety, about increased um, speeding on our neighborhood streets. I mean, literally just outside our residential, you know, homes, you know, um, people going um, excessively fast for the, for the area. Um, and it's, it's across the city. Across the city, I think I've heard sentiment from almost every neighborhood um, just casually about concerns about speeding in their neighborhood. And let's talk about across the city, citywide, because this is an issue for all of our communities. And the city, Luke, is looking at all of its streets, 10,000 streets, I think was a number I read, and coming up with new classifications. Can you explain a little bit about that since you were on the city council? Well, so the, the city is quite advanced in the way that they're thinking about how land use and transportation is connected. If you want walkable streets and walkable neighborhoods, if you want the type of things that cities offer, which is basically public spaces where people like to congregate and get that feel of being in a city, you can't have a street that is hostile to people who wanna be out. Um, and so it's an issue of like really making this connection between the type of city that people say they want. You know, Salt Lake City does a citywide survey every two years, I think, asking uh, residents about all sorts of questions. And I remember extraordinarily high numbers for people who want businesses uh, within walking distance of their homes. Um, but we work contrary to that if we provide all of this space for cars and parking. You, you can't have walkability and also have cars um, being able to go 30 or 40 miles an hour on streets that are as wide as our streets are. I, I wanted to kind of get back to your driver's perspective comment, Lara. Um, I, I feel the same way. I think we're all, there. people, there aren't different types of people. Most of us drive. And, and the way we drive, and this is a, a, 
a very much of a, of a founding principle of sweet streets, the way we drive is affected by the way streets are designed. It's not that people are bad drivers or good drivers or ag aggressive drivers or courteous drivers. It's really the environment that creates people's behavior. Now, some people, of course, are total jerks. And I just came back from Chicago and there's very much a way of driving in Chicago that wouldn't be accepted driving in Salt Lake City. But, but it really is the environment. And so the way that you design a street is important because it affects how fast people are going to drive. And this is what the Street Typologies Project is at the city, trying to create these new designs for all of our different types of streets is to make sure that we're designing a street in the way that directs drivers to drive at a certain speed. And my experience, say driving in Chicago in a street that's not very wide, uh, it'll be two lanes and you'll have parking on each side. And I'm very happy driving us down a street 20 miles an hour because I get to see things that I wouldn't if I'm going 30 miles an hour. I can stop someplace pretty easily, right? Because I see it and I'm not, you know, past it when I decide that I want to stop there. Um, you can see people on the sidewalks. And the reason that we like cities is because there are other interesting people there. There are benefits to driving slowly. And I don't get mad when I'm driving 20 miles an hour as long as I'm moving. I think people get frustrated in traffic because they're not moving at all. And for me, the magic of traffic engineering is to slow people down, but keeping people moving. And that should be our goal. Um, I think people won't notice that they're going 20 miles an hour because the benefits of going 20 miles an hour are pretty apparent. You get to enjoy and take in your surroundings instead of always moving through as fast as possible. Thanks, Luke. John A., I want to come back to you to close. The current city statute, I believe, or ordinance sets the speed limit at 25 miles per hour. So lowering it by five miles per hour is what Sweet Streets is asking. And the data in your petition also points out that more than 36,000 people were killed in traffic crashes in the U.S. in 2019. It's the leading cause of death for kids age 5 to 14, according to the National Association of City Transportation Officials. So you expect that if this were to come to pass, it would have a significant impact on public health, it sounds like. Yeah, and you know, and also in, you, know, you can find on our sweet, the Sweet Streets website, you can find more information about the 20 is Plenty campaign, but also there are other cities across the world, but in, also in the United States that have implemented this and have seen behavior change. So it's not theoretical, it is something that has worked in other cities. Um, particularly there's a study we cite in Portland where it, it just changes it, it, it makes everyone slow down, changes culture, and it, it's, we consider it a beginning step for lots of other changes we'd like to see in the city. It's, it's just, it's opening, it's making so many more things possible if we slow down and we make that a requirement. And then it's like, then if you need, if it needs to be faster, there's more of an onerous to make the case or to design the street even more safely if it needs to be faster. Um, so, um, so it's just the beginning. We hope, we think there's mass support across the city for it. We hope, um, you know, our current, our current, um, elected, um, our current representatives in the city council and the future ones on the horizon, um, will also be, um, supportive of 20 is plenty. So how can people get involved if they're listening and thinking, Hey, this is an issue I'd like to get involved in. I'm guessing there's yard signs and there's also some grassroots organizing they could help you with. What's the website, John A.? 
Yeah, please come over to sweetstreetsslc.org. Right on the homepage, you'll see the 20th Plenty campaign. You can sign the petition. Um, you can request a yard sign through the, that petition form. And we encourage you also, you know, we are all volunteer. We're a brand new, new group. We really encourage your donation small. Um, and also to join, um, you know, also on the petition, you can opt in to join our list. And that way we'll keep you informed about lots of opportunities to help make our streets sweeter in Salt Lake City. John A. Nardone and Luke Garrett of Sweet Streets and the 20 is Plenty campaign to slow down traffic on neighborhood streets to 20 miles per hour in Salt Lake. Check tonight's show notes for a link. You can sign the petition there or get a yard sign if you're interested. I'm Laura Jones, and thanks for listening to the Radioactive Summer Break. Download KRCL's mobile app wherever you get your apps, and you can listen to the show where you want, when you want. And don't forget, if you can find the time and a few dimes to spare, you can support good trouble and make a difference in our community. To round out the show, I've got some positive vibration. Bob Marley and the Whalers on KRCL 90.9.